0: Good morning, uh, or good afternoon, or good evening. Uh, My name is Jeremy Alford. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Pastor Todd has given me the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning, and I am extremely excited to do just that. Uh, Previously, uh, we've been in the Gospel of Mark. We've gone through the first nine chapters, and then starting last week, we started working through some of these topics. Uh, Last week, we went through emotions versus emotionalism. Uh, This week, I want to talk to you a little bit about the church and what is the church. You know, Mark Twain is quoted as saying, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Well, it's my hope today to bring you a little bit more understanding about the church and what she is and to whom she belongs. And hopefully that knowledge will not bother you, but instead bring you into a place of deeper love and deeper commitment to the church. You see, the church has always been in competition for your devotion. Now that the Chiefs are pretty good, soon you will want to go home early and watch the game, or perhaps travel to Kansas City to watch it at Arrowhead. If you're not a football fan, there are other things that compete against church. Just a sunny day when the fish are biting or perhaps having family in town or some kind of a vacation, the church has always been in competition for your attention. It's currently in competition against online sermons and YouTube worship. It's my hope that after today, the church will emphatically win against all other things that compete against her for your devotion and attention. So, as we get started today, I want to pray and then talk about the church. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for who you are. God, we ask for your understanding, that you would help us to understand the church. God, help us to be faithful to her, to regard her as important. Lord, we. We ask that you would increase our enthusiasm, that you would increase our desire for your church to grow, both, both numerically, but also in depth. God, I pray that this place, the First Baptist Independence, amongst all the other churches, that we would all bring you glory and do nothing that dishonors your name. In your name I pray, amen. Well, today I want to give a four-tier explanation of the church to help you understand what it is and who it belongs to. And it's my belief that if you truly understand what the church is, and if you truly understand who the church belongs to, that you won't want to do anything else on a Sunday morning. So let's first start by giving kind of a definition of what the church is not. Sometimes to understand what something is, you have to understand what it is not. Oftentimes, in our American westernized churches, we think of the church incorrectly. We think too little of the church. You see, Americans have this tendency to view the church as either a social club or a service provider. But the church is not a social club or a service provider. And to think of it this way, belittles the church and gives us a false understanding of who she is. You see, the church is not a social club. On the surface the church may look very similar to a club not too long ago i was a part of the independence disc golf club and that group of people we got together because of a shared interest and we regularly met in order to play disc golf some people were more dedicated than other people occasionally we ran events to draw more attention to the club or to raise money for the club We were constantly trying to get more members to join the Disc Golf Club. All of those things could be said of the church as well, but the church is not a collection of people whose hobby happens to be God. It's not a social club. It is also not a service provider. If it was, then the customer would always have the authority the consumer would run the church. But this is not the case because we know that the authority belongs to Jesus. I think it's kind of ironic that we call our Sunday morning gathering the church service. It's as if we're telling people to pull into the church parking lot at either nine o'clock or 11 o'clock and come inside to get your soul serviced, like tune-ups for your soul in 60 minutes or less. It's like we're selling this product. Thinking this way leads you to think that the church is all about you, and that's not okay. It's as if I'm saying I need to go to church every Sunday morning so that you can cater to me because I need my weekly routine tune-up. Church is not about you as a consumer or as a customer. The church is not a social club. The church is not a service provider. And if you think of it like this, then you will begin to have a difficult time integrating your Monday to Saturday life into your Sunday life. To think of it incorrectly leads many people into this perpetual habit of just missing church. It promotes the idea that all of these important life decisions can be made without thinking about the effects of those decisions upon the church. People think that they can go wherever they want to go and do whatever they want to do, and they think about their friends or their family, they think about their career, but they give little thought to what that will do to the church they're leaving or to whether or not there is a church to wherever they might be going. Perhaps worst of all, when we think of the church incorrectly, It allows us to escape the reality that we are some way partially responsible for the spiritual well-being of everybody else that belongs to the church. We are responsible for the well-being, the physical livelihood, even the financial livelihood of the other people that attend our church. Romans chapter 12 says to rejoice with those that rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. And a social club and a service provider do not do that. And so again, I ask, what is the church? What is the church? I want to give you a four-tiered approach into understanding this question. And so the first tier that we'll start with is that the church is an assembly of people the church is an assembly of people, meaning the church is a who, not a what. You see, the word most often used for the church throughout the New Testament is the word ecclesia, meaning a gathering or an assembly. Now, this word didn't start by meaning specifically a church gathering, because we see in the book of Acts in chapter 19, verse 32, as Luke the author of Acts is remembering Paul's trip to Ephesus, and he starts talking about the riots that Paul started, and he describes it by saying this in verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly, or the ecclesia, was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. You see, later in the same chapter, Luke uses this word, ecclesia, to refer to a legal body of people, like what you would find in a courtroom. And so the word began simply by meaning a gathering of people. As Christians continued to gather throughout the New Testament, this word took on a new meaning to refer specifically to a Christian gathering or a Christian assembly. Now, the reason that I go into the original language, the reason that we talk about Ecclesia, is because it teaches us something that is foundational to our understanding of the church. We must understand that at the base level, the church is a group of people coming together face to face. Now, it is not my intention to make you feel guilty for staying home. Listen, it is 100% not my goal to guilt you into coming to church next Sunday. So please Please do not hear me say that. I understand that these are extremely difficult times that none of us have dealt with before. And it is my hope and it is my prayer that you as an individual or as a family are listening to and submitting to God. I further understand that Paul himself mentions in Romans chapter one, that he wants to be with that church, but he's been hindered. There's something that has prevented him from gathering with the church in Rome. And Paul was not chastised for being hindered. He was not rebuked for not being with that church. However, we do see that his affection ran deep for that church and that he was in constant prayer for that church. And so we all know that there have been hindrances, very real hindrances that have prevented us from physically gathering as a group of people. It's my prayer, and I want to encourage you that over the next couple months, as those hindrances begin to be lifted, that you will once again leave the comfort of your home to gather together as the people of God. You see, online church is not church because there is not a gathering of people. There is no ecclesia Even in Facebook Live, where we're all in the same chat room, there's no ecclesia, there's no face-to-face gathering. Online church is simply listening to a sermon, and church, church is so, so much more than that. But let me say it one more time. I do not want to make you feel guilty for not coming to church over the last couple months. I simply want you to understand that church by its very definition is an assembly of people. Now, the gathering of people is a very particular gathering. It is an assembly of Christian believers who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It is a particular gathering because it is clear that any meeting of two or more Christians does not automatically mean that they've had church, meaning that if you're at Walmart and you run into another believer, just because you've interacted with another Christian doesn't mean that you had church right there in aisle five. Going to a Christian concert and worshiping God amongst thousands of believers does not mean that you had church in that location. Church is a very particular gathering. I think to understand a little bit about what I mean when I say particular gathering, it's helpful for us to look back into the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19. This will help us to understand what makes an assembly of people go from just a social gathering to a church gathering. And so following Israel's rescue from Egyptian slavery, God has brought his people together in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai And Moses is getting ready to head up the mountain to meet with God. And that's where we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. Verse 3 says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see, it's during this time that God speaks to the Israelites as his chosen people. He identifies them as uniquely belonging to him for his service. He also gives them his law by which they are to live by. You see, God uses these exact same uh, definitions, these exact same words in 1 Peter chapter two to explain the New Testament church. 1 Peter chapter two, verse three and four. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You see, it's clear that the people gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai were churching. If we can call it that word, if we can kind of make up that verb. Churching here means that they were doing more than just getting a latte and, and catching up on how the week went with a buddy. This gathering was a particular gathering because of the presence of God, because the people were receiving his words and his promises and his guidance, and the entire nation of Israel was together as one, because the people themselves were being called to God himself. And so in the Old Testament, this particular assembly of people was marked by circumcision. You knew that you were part of God's people if you were circumcised. In the New Testament, the church is marked by baptism and communion. You know that you belong to the church by partaking in communion and by being baptized. The people gather to be in the presence of God and to receive his word and his guidance and to be called to himself. Hebrews helps us to understand this a little bit more. So go ahead and hop over to Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews is going to help us understand that we do not simply belong to a local church, but we belong to a church that spans all time and all space. You see, I do not simply belong to First Baptist independence. I am a part of all believers across all history, across all geography. You see, what happened there at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 was a foreshadowing of Mount Zion. Hebrews 12 helps us to understand this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 and 19. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, referring to Mount Sinai, and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Then hopping down to verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Because of Jesus, our mountain is not physical and earthly, but it is instead heavenly. We come to a heavenly, to a universal mountain. You see, in one sense, we are currently experiencing the universal church. That is happening right now. If you're part of the church, then you are a part of the universal church. However, the universal church expands all time, all space, all geography. It includes all believers. And so in in another sense, because we're limited to this time, we're limited to this place, we are not fully experiencing the universal church. That's why there is the local church. And so the local church is a gathering. It is an assembly. Now let me move into tier two of understanding the church. Not only is the church an assembly, but the church is an embassy. The church is an embassy. Now I don't know if you watch a lot of movies or not, uh, but there was a movie that came out in 1997 with uh, Val Kilmer and Elizabeth Shue called The Saint. Uh, In the movie, in The Saint, a woman scientist named Dr. Emma Russell discovers the secret to cold fusion or discovers the secret to clean energy, essentially. And the evil uh, Tretiaks, these Russians, are trying to steal the secret formula from the doctor. And in this epic scene, Dr. Russell is running toward an American embassy. And Tretiak is like right behind her, chasing after her. And as she's running toward the embassy, she's yelling, "'I'm an American! I'm an American! I'm an American!' And Tretiak's like got a hold of her coat and she's got to like violently shed her coat and she makes it just barely through the gate of the embassy and the armed guards shut the gate and they start yelling at Tretiak, back off, back off, back off. It's, it's an awesome epic scene. It's, you see, Dr. Russell, in that scene, she found protection because she went into the embassy and she was no longer on Russian soil, but because she was in the embassy, she was in U.S. sovereign territory. Now, I know that embassies don't really work that way. An American couldn't just yell, I'm an American, and get into the embassy. But the, the point is still very true for our understanding of the church. Just like the embassy in that movie was a representation of America. It it represented America in Russia and it gave her a safe haven so that she might as well no longer be in Russia. That is what the church is. The church is an embassy. The local church is an embassy of the universal church. You see, an embassy represents a place in a different place. But there's a different kind of embassy going on here, one that represents a place from the future. That's what the local church is. The local church represents the universal church, which is all Christians across time and space. A local church is a real-life embassy set in the present that represents Christ's future kingdom and his coming universal heavenly kingdom. As a believer living in an embassy, I long to be in my homeland. And you should as well. All believers long to be in their homeland, which is heaven with Christ. We long for the day that Revelation 11.15 describes. A day when the kingdom of the world has has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever This will one day come true, but it is not yet true. For now, we have a place on earth called the local church, where the citizens of heaven can be affirmed as citizens. They can be affirmed as belonging to God, and they can find protection from their enemies. Now, we know that the local church gathers in a particular location in the same way that an embassy is in a particular location. However, the church is not a building. And we know this to be true. If you've been in church any length of time, it's been said that the church is not these four walls. The church is not the building. But yet we still use the word incorrectly. Oftentimes you will hear people say, welcome to First Baptist Independence. But it would be much better to say, welcome to the gathering of First Baptist Independence. You see, the church is not the building itself. People do not enter a church. The church enters a building. In fact, a specifically designated building is not essential to the local church. And so we see that the church is an assembly. It is also an embassy. And the third tier is that the church is a is a family. The church is a family. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, Paul is outlining qualifications for elders, and he makes this comparison. He says, An elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see, Paul makes a, a pretty simple point here. A household is a biological family. A church is a spiritual family. The church is God's family. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 says that in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, don't let that word predestin- predestination scare you. The point I'm trying to make is that if you are a believer, you have been adopted into God's family. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. When God draws people to himself, he draws them into family. And all families have similarities, they have resemblances. For proof of this, just watch Duck Dynasty. Duck Dynasty was a show on A&E, a reality TV show that followed the Robertson family around. The Robertson family owns the Duck Commander shop. Uh, They make duck calls and all of them, they've got these big, great, long, huge beards. And it's just super easy to tell if you've run into a Robertson or not, if they were in the room with you, you would know, oh, you're a Robertson because their family has a resemblance, has a similarity to it. Now families, again, are similar, therefore the church has a certain similarity, a certain sameness to it across the board. One of those similarities, one of those sameness aspects is truth truth Paul describes the local church in 1st Timothy chapter 3 as a pillar and foundation of truth all local church families should be recognized by being a pillar and foundation for truth it is the truth of god's word that brings the church into existence it is the truth of god's word that is preached on a regular basis and shapes all of the churches to be but there is still another way that the truth relates to the church You see, the church is the means by which God's truth reaches into the world. The church is the method of communication that God uses to tell his truth to the world. Now, of course, it is important for individual believers to be spreading the truth, but it is primarily through the church that the truth is upheld and honored. Yes, Every believer needs to be doing their part, but no, you do not need to be doing your part disconnected from the church. The idea that you can follow Jesus and yet abandon the church is not biblical. The church is a necessity. Paul says it is a necessity in every town, and we see this in Paul's missionary tactics. He does not simply go from town to town, seeking to make converts or seeking to make a a few disciples here and there. Paul's tactic is to go from town to town, planting churches. He does not simply want converts, he wants churches. Check out Titus chapter one, verse five. This is again, Paul giving instructions to Titus now about how to run a church. And he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say that Titus should appoint elders in every church, though this is a, a very good idea, something very important. He instead says to appoint elders in every town. Why? Because every town needs a church. His instructions to Titus are not to go and make converts, but to instead go and establish churches who then go and make converts. Our family, this local church family, and all church families should have the similarity of spreading the truth in order that more people might become adopted into the family of God. And so the church is an assembly, it is an embassy, it is a family, and then the fourth tier is that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. In one of the final passages of the Bible, the apostle John is given a glimpse into the future when God recreates the cosmos for his people to to enjoy. And so he refers to the church as the new Jerusalem. And he says this in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The church is a bride. Now, whose bride is it? Chapter 19, verse 7 and 8 helps us in this way. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen as the righteous deeds of the saints. The church is the beautiful bride of the lamb who is Jesus himself. And so when Jesus returns one day, there will be a wedding feast. And as a Christian, you are invited to that wedding feast, not as a guest, but as the bride. None of us will have to sneak into heaven using the back door. We will walk right down the middle aisle. If you want to understand just how committed Jesus is to the church, man, here's your answer. He did not just create the church and then let it be, he marries it. Christ is not just our almighty king, he is our perfect husband. This is how much he cares for the local church. What's even more amazing is when you consider who the church is, because Jesus is way out of the church's league. But yet, on that day, the church will look beautiful because clean and righteous linens will be given to her to wear. This is a promise that the church will one day be perfect, which is an unfortunate reminder that the church is not currently perfect. The church is not the beauty that she will one day become. You see, in the Old Testament, God uses a human marriage to show his people what, what they're like, what, he's, what he is like. In Hosea chapter one, verse two, he tells Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Hosea's wife is a woman by the name of Gomer, Gomer is an adulterous woman. She is a prostitute who cheats on her husband. And God is telling his people, you are like Gomer. You are an adulterous people who are spiritually cheating on their husband. You see, that's what sin is. It's loving something more than God. It's giving yourself to something more than God. It's, it's cheating on God. Spiritually speaking, the church is unfaithful. The church is like Gomer, yet Jesus remains faithful. Hosea chapter three, verse one, further demonstrates this relationship between Christ and the church using Hosea and Gomer. It says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. God is telling Hosea that even though his wife is unfaithful, even though she is adulterous, that you must pursue her, you must love her, you must remain faithful to her. For Hosea, that meant that he literally had to go and buy back his wife from another man that she had sold herself to. And this cost him 15 shekels of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine the unfaithfulness of Gomer cost Hosea dearly. In the exact same way, the church's unfaithfulness has cost Jesus dearly. He paid his life to purchase the church back to himself. This is how much he loves you. He laid down his life, even though you were unfaithful, even though you are completely undeserving, he laid down his life in order to buy you back to himself so that you will one day live in a perfect marriage with Christ the Lord, your perfect husband. You see, church is not Christ's hobby. It is not just a fun little project that he's working on. It is his marriage and if you're a believer, it is your marriage too. When you think about what it means to be church in this way, it becomes way more exciting. Because we'll gather together on Sundays and we'll look around the room and we'll, we'll see each other and we'll be absolutely amazed at who we are before God. We'll hear God revealed in his word. We'll sing about who he is in our songs and be completely awestruck that we get to be a part of his bride. We'll live each day knowing that Jesus could not possibly care for his church any more than he already does. He died for his church. He died for, so that you could stop playing church and so that we might understand the church as an assembly, as an embassy, as a family, as the literal bride of Christ. I hope that this information does not bother you the way that it perhaps would have bothered Mark Twain. I hope instead that you are encouraged into a deeper love and a deeper commitment for the church. You see, seeing the church in this way, understanding who she truly is and to whom she truly belongs makes church far more exciting. It means that there is no more competition. To see this church this way means that you would rather be with this group of believers than to enjoy a sunny day out on the lake fishing. It means that to be with the church is more exciting than to be an arrowhead watching Mahomes throw a left-handed pass. The church is better than those things. There is no more competition. The church is better. It is infinitely more valuable. It is infinitely more beautiful and satisfying than any of those things could ever be. The church is more than a hobby. It is more than a collection of people Interested in God. The church is an assembly of people who have been called into the presence of God, who represent the universal church and are a family and are the bride of Christ. I hope that this is helpful and it leads you into a deeper love for the church and a deeper commitment to the church. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are so good. You are beautiful. God, we praise you because you have gathered us under your name, under your banner. You have gathered your church. Lord, I confess that I am like Gomer, that I am adulterous, and that I have whored myself out to to football and to to all other kinds of hobbies, Lord. And I am ashamed and I am embarrassed, but yet when I look at Christ, I see faithfulness. And I praise you for your faithfulness. Thank you for paying the price, the ultimate price on the cross to purchase us back to yourself. God, it is my prayer that I will love your church better and that I will be more committed to your church and that our church will love you and be more committed to you and that your name will be glorified and that your name will be lifted high in this place. And it's in your name I pray, amen.